0: All right, well, uh, today we are beginning our series in the book of Colossians. And so I invite you to turn there with me. If you're not there, turn back to Colossians with me. And uh, today as we begin, we're just going to, uh, to start with looking at the first two verses today. So we're not going to get all that far. Uh, these are words, these first two verses are words that I'm guessing many of you, many of us, uh, would tend to read and just kind of blaze right on by, uh, and and in order to get into the meat, okay, what's the book really about? We just kind of cruise past these verses, and uh, and that's understandable. I think we probably all do that. And yet the reality is these are not throwaway words. These are not. This is not just a mere formality uh, to the book. And so there's there's actually I think quite a bit we can we can that can be gained by slowing down and considering these words. And uh, if you're new to uh, our church, or uh, uh, even in the last little while, last several months or year, um, this is typically how we do uh, sermon series. We take a book and we just work our way through it. Uh, With psalms, we picked and chose uh, a few different psalms to do. But this is ordinarily how we do it. And one of the benefits, at least of this, is it forces us to cover some of these Verses that we may otherwise not choose to preach on, and so that's one advantage. Uh, but anyway, that's uh, so. We're, we're, as we begin Colossians, we're starting right here in in, in verse one, and we're not going to just cruise past this uh, this greeting, this initial greeting. So there's much to be gained here by being reminded at the outset of this uh, just what it is that we have in our hands here as we hold this book of Colossians, to be reminded. Uh, what it is we have in our possession, what it is we are studying, and and what this book is seeking to accomplish. The author of this book, ultimately, of course, God who has inspired it, but the Apostle Paul as he writes it. And all these things emerge from right within this greeting here. So let's just read this again together, and then we will get into it. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And so, as this begins, uh, we find out right off the bat who wrote this book. And, uh, and we see here that this is nothing less, this, this book of Colossians is nothing less than a letter carrying the full weight of apostolic authority. Another way we might say that is that this is the word of God delivered to us through one of his authorized messengers. Now that statement that this is the word of God, that this has apostolic authority uh, to to most of us, that's probably not that unique. Uh, You knew that already. You knew this is God's word. That's maybe even why you're here. Uh, You know that that's what this is. Uh, But it's worth reminding ourselves again here of this reality, of why it is we're bothering to meet together, why you're putting up with the hassle of sitting in your car uh, to be here. And we don't just put this all on hold for these months until it's more convenient for us. Uh, Because among other things, we are here to hear and to sit under nothing less than the Word of God Himself. So this begins, uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Uh, we typically, in our letters, we sign our names at the end. Uh, but in Paul's day, in the first century, you put your name up front, which in a lot of ways makes more sense. Uh, we, would guess, would see an address or a return address, and we'd know who's, who we're getting the letter from. Uh, but they would write, the author, right at the beginning, that's what Paul's doing. And he identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, that word apostle means messenger or delegate. But, this is not just uh, some generic use of the term. This is not just a run-of-the-mill messenger. Now This is referring to the office of apostle. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God Himself. Uh, such an apostle, an apostle of Christ Jesus... Uh, had a commission from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The risen Lord Jesus, no less. And this was according to God's plan, God's will. And this commission was to go out and to proclaim the gospel in all the world and to do so with a special and unique authority and power. And this office of apostle was limited in number to a certain number of men. And it served a particular function meant to serve as the foundation of the church, along with the prophets. So this was not an office that was passed down, that was meant to be filled by subsequent men. Uh, this is not like even pastor or elder. If, I, if something happened to me and I croaked here, someone could come, one of the other elders, and push me to the side and just take over and, and fulfill the office. Um, that's that's a bit crass, maybe, but but... If something happened to me, someone else steps in, you carry on as a church, no problem. Uh, Another pastor, the office, uh, someone else can take it. That's how elder pastor works, but not so with apostle. And this is what the Bible teaches us. Ephesians 2 verse 20 is key for this. There Paul writes, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That is the church built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, the whole church, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So they, the apostles, like Paul, they served a particular function. They were laying the foundation of this church that continues to be built up today. Among the requirements for this office, for apostleship, uh, they must have seen the risen Lord Jesus. Another reason we would say this is not something that continues today. Uh, Acts 1.22 is a place where we see that. Paul himself also indicates that in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 1 and 2, where he himself saw the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. Uh, Moreover, Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 12 that uh, that he did the works of a true apostle among them. That true miracles, actual miracles, were part of what the apostles did. as was part of their unique authority. So these were not you know, just uh, suspect claims. These were very public displays of power that were undeniable to people. Much like the Lord Jesus himself. Because these men were invested with authority from Jesus to do these things. So such men received a commission directly from Christ to be his specially gifted emissaries. And so they held a unique place and still do of authority in the church. And So even though they're dead and gone they still carry that forward in their teachings and doctrines that have been passed down to us through the written word of God which is precisely what we have here in this book of Colossians. Peter, even calls Paul's writings scripture. In 2 Peter three sixteen. he talks about how some of Paul's things that he writes are difficult, and twisted. some people twist them as they do the other scriptures, he says. So there was even a self-conscious understanding the apostles had of their authority in the church. And so Paul is one of these apostles. He's writing this letter to the Colossians. Now Paul often mentioned his apostolic authority, uh, and, and quite frequently in the greetings to in his letters to these different churches. But he didn't always do that, but he often did. And here he reminds us that this calling, this apostleship, was by the will of God. Which is to say, Paul did not just choose this for himself. And of course you remember this from the book of Acts, from chapter 9, Paul is very much on his way to harm the Christian church, not join it, but, but persecute it. And it's the Lord Jesus who interrupts his plans on the road to Damascus, and Paul is converted. Paul did not take this office for himself. He was commissioned by Christ, and this is according to God's will. Uh, here's what Jesus told uh, Ananias in Acts nine, when Ananias was to go to Paul, you remember, and and uh, and, and pray for him, and his sight, Paul's sight would return to him. Ananias was understandably hesitant to do so, but Jesus said, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so as Paul writes this, he says he's an apostle of Christ by the will of God. One of the effects this would have is that if somebody takes issue with what he's writing, does not like what he has to say, then really they would need to take that up with the Lord Jesus himself, who appointed Paul to this, with God himself. This is his will for Paul to fulfill this this role. So this is a letter written by Paul the Apostle, but he also says that Timothy is one of his co-authors. Now this letter... Uh, In in verse 3 we'll see uh, the the use of the first person plural where it says we always thank God. So that would most naturally be Paul and and Timothy who's writing with him. Um, But then it's going to go on and uh, really for most of the letter and, and further down I think it's verse 23. Give me a sec. Verse 23, where it begins, then he, he, he starts using the first person singular, where he says, I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice. And so the, the rest of the letter really carry, carries on in that vein. So that's really, this is mainly from the Apostle Paul, although Timothy is with him as he's writing this. And so some think maybe Timothy was his, uh, the actual writer of this, that, 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 uh, that Jesus, or sorry, uh, Paul, Spoke these words and Timothy then wrote them down. That's entirely possible, of course. Uh, But either way, Timothy is with him. And if you think of Timothy, what you know of him from the New Testament, he he was a man who was spoken of very highly uh, by Paul in so many different places. Uh, He was a man that Timothy or that that, that Paul viewed as a very close friend, a close fellow minister. Paul would send Timothy out on Paul's behalf to churches, including churches that had very serious issues to be worked out, like Corinth. Multiple times, Timothy was sent to Corinth because he could be trusted by Paul. Uh, He's also sent to Philippi, to Thessalonica. If you remember in 1 Thessalonians, Paul was concerned deeply about the church, and he said when he could stand it no longer, uh, he he was willing to be left by himself and send his close companion on to Thessalonica to check on the church. Here, Timothy is called our brother, as it says in, in, I think, most English Bibles, if not all. But it really says in Greek, the brother. This is Timothy, the brother. Which probably suggests that Timothy himself is fairly well known and, and highly regarded by Paul. Again, a faithful brother. And so Paul has introduced himself As the author of this, Timothy is with him. We will see more of of Paul's description of himself as he calls himself an apostle here. We'll see more of his ministry later in chapter 1 and into chapter 2. But the, the, the main purpose of this statement of him as an apostle is to remind the recipients, once again, of the reasons why he writes to them. And the reasons why it is they ought to pay attention and listen to what he has to say. Paul, as we read through Colossians, he has not actually met these believers in person. Uh, We see that even in verses 6 and 7 and 8. Paul has received word of the Colossian church from Epaphras, but he has not actually met them. So who is this man that has the nerve to write them and offer some correction about some things they're believing? Well, he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ by the will of God. And so it is as... Calvin says on this, from this statement about his apostleship, it followed that Paul did not act rashly in writing to persons that were not known by him, inasmuch as he was discharging an embassy with which God had entrusted him. For he was not bound to one church merely, but his apostleship extended to all. And so for any who might have been wondering why they should listen to this letter, well, it's because Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. And so it is for us too. This is a reason to gather around. This is a reason to put up with inconvenience. This is a reason to listen, to sit up straight, to do our best to hear these words and to believe these words and to submit ourselves to them. This was true in the first century and it's true now. This is a letter carrying the full weight of apostolic authority. Secondly, uh, this letter was written to a local church, to a local expression of the body of Christ. So we have to whom this letter is from, now to whom it is addressed. It says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So Paul calls these believers saints. Uh, This is a common New Testament descriptor for believers, that Christians are Holy ones, set apart. That's what saints means. That is, believers are made holy by God's grace, clothed in the righteousness of God through faith in His Son, justified, declared righteous before God by faith. Church, the saints are those who are called out of this world and called into the kingdom of Christ. And so even though still very much imperfect people, those still very much... Sinners, believers, are called saints. Now, this is who believers are positionally before God. This is how God views us as His, set apart for Him. This is very different than you know, how, how sainthood is used, say, in the Roman Catholic Church, where it's reserved for the most special and, and, and supposedly godly of believers. That's not how the New Testament uses this word. Uh, those who are trusting in Christ are righteous before God, and He declares us righteous and calls us saints. So Paul addresses them as saints, but he goes on to compliment them, I would suggest to you, by calling them also faithful brothers. So as Paul is writing this church, he understands these are true believers in the Lord Jesus. And he has heard of these men and women. And he's heard of their faith and their steadfastness from Epaphras. We read that in verses 6 and 7 again. Now Epaphras in all likelihood is the founding pastor of that church. Uh, Again, Paul had not been there. He's heard of them from Epaphras who is now at the time of this writing with Paul. Later at the end of the book he sends his greetings back to the church with this letter. And so in all likelihood what has happened most would suggest that when, when Paul was in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, it says there uh, that, that all of Asia, which is not the continent as we would think of it, but the, this particular region, uh, this province, uh, th- all of Asia heard the gospel, heard the word of the Lord, when Paul spent his two years in Ephesus. And, and, and Colossae is about 120 miles uh, from, I think just east, it's 120 miles east of, of Ephesus. And so likely what happened is Epaphras has heard the gospel from Paul, he has believed it, and he's gone back to Colossae, he's preached the gospel, and people have believed it, and the church has been founded there. Uh, Epaphras is called a, a faithful a fellow minister of, of Paul's. And now there's been some issues that have arisen in the church, they're threatened with some false teaching and different things, as we will see uh, from what we find in, in, in chapter 2 in particular. And Epaphras, it would seem, has gone to find Paul. He has sought Paul out to seek his help. And this letter is part of that help. And yet, even though they've faced these temptations to abandon truth and to stray, Paul still addresses them as saints, their brothers in Christ. He still has commended them for their faithfulness thus far, even though he still has correction for them. So after calling them saints and faithful brothers... Uh, They were then given, we really see, two locations, if you will. Uh, They are in Christ and they are in or at Colossae. This first location is a spiritual one. They are saints and faithful brothers in Christ on account of their spiritual union with the Lord Jesus. They are united to Christ by faith. This is what makes them saints. This is what makes them righteous before God. This is what makes them holy. And it's ultimately what accounts for their faithfulness. They are united to Christ by faith. They are part of His body. And all the benefits and all the blessings of salvation belongs to them on account of this union. And this phrase, and the doctrine of union with Christ, is something that will come up later in the book as Paul will repeat that, that uh, those words, in Him, in Him, especially in chapter 3. And so these are those who have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son into the kingdom of Christ. They're united to Him. This is spiritually who they are. And yet, they are also in or at Colossae, their physical location. Spiritually, their position is shared by believers throughout the world, throughout time. All who trust in Christ are in Christ. But their physical location is the city of Colossae. This is a local expression of the universal church. Now the word church is not used here. But it is clearly implied as this is who the saints are. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2. Also in the greeting of that letter written by Paul. Very similar greeting but it's filled out a little bit from what we have in Colossians. There, Paul says, to the church, so there the word is used, to the church of God, that is in Corinth, physical location, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints. So there, very clearly, the church, those sanctified in Christ, and those called saints, are all the same people. And they are those who are also physically located in the city of Corinth. But then Paul adds there, In 1 Corinthians 1-2, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So again, in 1 Corinthians, Paul sees the universal church, the body of Christ as a whole, those who call on the name of the Lord, wherever you might be. But he's dealing in that letter with a local gathering, a local expression of that church. People Who are united to Christ, but who dwell at a particular location in a particular time. Why stress this? Well, the church is often downplayed. And the corporate aspect of these epistles is often easily missed. Uh, we, We might come to this book as individuals, and that's appropriate. But we also want to come to this as a group, as a church. The importance of the local church can be missed, sadly, in the Bible, but really it's actually everywhere. It's really such a part of the fabric of the New Testament that we might not even realize it at times. Similar to how perhaps a fish might not even realize that it's really in water because it's just everywhere. And then there's other teachings, other doctrines that are similar to this. One is the resurrection. Uh, it's just everywhere, and it's implied in so many different places in the New Testament, even where the resurrection of Christ, even where they're not, it's not being specifically addressed. So if, one example of that, if you drop down to verse 15 of Colossians 1, it says, he is the image of the invisible God, talking about Jesus. Okay, well, that's, There's a lot in those words, and, but probably resurrection is not the first thing that comes to mind. However, it's very clearly implied because He is the image of the invisible God. Not He was, He is. So He's alive. Right? So it's, just, it's implicit there. Right? It's built right into it. We might miss that. Well, this letter assumes the church as much of the New Testament does. Some of the instructions here in this letter, for example... Uh, don't even make sense if we're not in a local church. For example, as we get to chapter 3, we're told to be bearing with one another. Well, who are these people? Who is this one another? Well, it's fellow believers in your church. He goes on to talk about forgiving one another as needed. Who's one another? Again, it assumes the local church. Now obviously if you meet a believer who's not from your church it's good to bear with them if that's needed. Forgive them if that's necessary. That's still good. That's right. But ordinarily as it was at Colossae this is played out with the others in your church. You can't really fulfill these commands with people you don't know who are part of the body of Christ the universal church but who live An hour, two hours, other side of the world, however far away. If these are people you just see once in a while, well, it's pretty easy to bear with them. You may not have much to forgive. But if these are people you are with constantly and regularly, we know this, you know this, if you've been around us long enough, this suddenly takes on much more meaning. To bear with one another. How important and necessary this is for a church to function well. Now, this letter is written to the specific church at Colossae, obviously. But if you jump to the end of the book, in chapter 4 and verse 16, Paul says to read this letter to the church that is also in Laodicea, a nearby city meaning that the instructions that he's giving to the local church in Colossae also has wider application to other churches as well. And of course, Christians have recognized this from very early on. It's why Colossians and even these other New Testament books were understood to be Scripture. One of the things that uh, was appealing about them is their wider universal uh, relevance to Christians, no matter where we might be including a world away and a couple thousand years later here in Saskatchewan. And so as you come before Colossians, as we continue this series, I'd encourage you to come with an eye to certainly believe this and apply it to yourself personally, but also to do so alongside of your brothers and sisters around you. There's instruction here. Which teaches not just us as individual Christians how to, what to believe, what to do, etc. But also what the church ought to be about. And what we as a church ought to look like. And perhaps if you've been on the outsides for a time, uh, sort of on the outside of church life, just consider this an invitation to come in, to come closer uh, to to make this home where you would uh, dive in and seek to submit yourself to God's Word as laid out in Colossians and elsewhere with other believers in a local church. Thirdly, all of this leads to this final point. This letter is given to bring about divine blessing to the church. So the opening here concludes with this greeting. Paul writes, Grace to you and peace... From God our Father. This is a little bit tricky to know what exactly he means by this because there's no verbs in that statement. Uh, Is he saying that grace and peace is already theirs, or that he wants them to have it? It can be a little tricky to know what does that even mean. Sounds nice. Well, it's most likely that Paul, in mind here, that this is what Paul is doing here is that this is a prayer, this is a desire, a wish for them that grace and peace might be multiplied to them. He might perhaps imply that word, multiplied. That that's his desire. That he desires grace and peace to abound in this church, within their hearts and within their corporate midst. Um, so this is, this is what Peter says in 1 Peter 1-2. Again, another greeting at the beginning of an epistle. There, Peter says this very explicitly. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So I think that's what Paul is doing here. It's a greeting that also forms a blessing and a prayer. Now of course, grace and peace are already in one sense theirs. It already belongs to these Colossians. They are, after all, saints. They are in Christ. They've received much grace from God already very clearly if they're believing in the Lord Jesus. And so I think what Paul is desiring here is not, he's not saying he's hoping they'll get saved, but rather addressing them already as believers in Christ. He's desiring that grace would come from God so that these believers would remain strong in the faith, steadfast, and, and walking in the truth. I think that's, that's his desire. So in his, his commentary on this, um, Greg Beale says, this, talking about verse, uh, this, this greeting here, this states the goal of the letter, that God would give grace and peace to the recipients, which they will need to stand against the false teaching and to persevere and grow in their faith, which the remainder of the epistle will make clear. And so the, the grace and peace that Paul specifically desires for these Colossians is what he's going to go on to discuss and exhort them to in the remainder of the letter. And so in short, this letter, what is it about? What does Paul want? Well, he desires for the Colossians to live all of life according to Christ. That is, he wants their lives in every way to reflect that which is fitting and appropriate and consistent with the truth of Christ and the gospel. So so the, the heresies, the false teaching that he's going to deal with in this book, they threaten this. These false teachings would move them away and would land them being entrapped by a worldly wisdom and human tradition, which he says is not in accordance with Christ. So even as we get to verse 15. And it begins to discuss the preeminence of Christ. And it's a wonderful, uh, it's like a hymn almost, exalting who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Uh, It's not just a nice thing that Paul decides to insert there. But it is meant to ground these Colossians in the truth. And then the correction of errors, that exposes what it is that they need to reject. If they're going to hold to what is true, they're going to need to reject that which is false. And the practical instruction, as he gets into that, I mean, there's practical instruction throughout, but particularly into chapter 3, as he talks about what to put on, what to put off. He addresses homes. He addresses uh, masters and slaves and so on, husbands and wives, children. All of this flows logically out of the truth about Jesus Christ and the Christian life. So he's desiring them to believe true doctrine, what is true about Christ and the gospel, To believe what's true about how sanctification in the Christian life is to be pursued. And to walk in accordance with Christ in every conceivable way. That's the desire he's getting at. Another way we might say this is that he desires to bring them to maturity. If you look at chapter 1 verse 28. Paul says talking about Christ, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, and teaching everyone, with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy, that He powerfully works within me. That's a mission statement of sorts. Paul preaches Christ, and he labors to bring believers to maturity in Christ. And that's what he's doing as he writes this letter. That's his desire for them. And for us. And so Paul desires grace to abound that they may be brought to greater Christian maturity, holding firm to the truth and living consistently with it. And this is the effect that I trust and pray and hope. This is the effect that it will have with us, moving us toward that, toward greater maturity in Christ. And so as you come to this book, I would encourage you, come Seeking growth, seeking greater maturity, wherever you might be in your Christian walk, in your Christian life, new to this or having been at it for many years, young or old. Come seeking knowledge of the truth and desiring to bring all of your life into accordance with that truth. Come looking to put off maybe false beliefs you might have, inadvertently Paul is going to address false teaching that is creeping in but he does it as a a loving apostle desiring the good of the people they are being tempted by plausible arguments he's going to say Uh, we are not above this need for this kind of correction so let us come looking to put off false beliefs, false understandings, wherever we might find them, wherever this book might expose them in us. And let us do this together as a church, praying for one another along the way, seeking each other's good, that we might be knit together in love, walking together in accordance with Christ. And as Paul reveals here in this greeting... This is only possible through God, the one from whom grace flows. He prays that this grace might be theirs from God our Father. He is the ultimate source of every spiritual blessing. And so again, come hopeful, come looking to your heavenly Father for this grace and peace. Come looking to the one from whom all blessings flow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for giving us Your Word, revealing us to Yourself in it. We would not otherwise know You in this way. And so we thank You for Your grace and Your kindness to us and giving this to us. And I pray that as we come to Colossians that this would be a, just a, a really good and, and growing time for us as individuals and as a church as well. Father, I pray that we would walk in accordance with Christ and that you would expose false belief that we might be further conformed to the image of your Son. Father, this is a blessing that only you can give. I pray that we would recognize, even as Paul, that we we would strive with all our effort and yet knowing that ultimately you need to do the work in us as well. Father, Father, Bring us to greater maturity as individuals and as a church, I pray. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. I thank you for where we have seen bearing with one another. And I pray that you would just cause these things to abound all the more, that we would grow in love for one another as we grow in our love for you, in our gratitude to you. So we pray that you would bless us this day and in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just as we close, uh, I will. Uh, we're going to close with just singing.